This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Dirk Nowitzki, the former NBA MVP, retired in 2019 after spending a record 21 years with one franchise, the Dallas Mavericks. We've been attempting to book Nowitzki for over 10 years and finally had the chance to spend two days with the NBA legend in Dallas. Dirk shared a lot of his story, including his path from Germany to the NBA. Doubt creeps in a little bit, so I was, I was thinking, was this the right decision? Memorable moments from his iconic career. I laid on that bench and had some tears and thought about, you know, all the hard work that it took to get there. And tough times he faced along the way. I was hard on myself. How could this happen? How, how did I let this happen? Plus, Dirk details his life after basketball. I just think it's that pressure is, is away. It's off now. And looks back on some fun times spent with Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. I always tell the story that he came to my bachelor party. You know, how many owners come to their players' bachelor party. But we begin with Nowitzki discussing his family life, including a wedding story he's never told before. How have kids impacted your life? Uh, it was a, a, a crazy life changer. Uh, I think everybody warns you that your life will be different uh, before and after, but uh, I don't think you can prepare yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful change, uh, but all of a sudden, you know, I think your life is, is all about the kids now. It's, it's your, your life kind of, you know, takes a little bit of a back seat. What I feel the most is, is pride. You know, when they do anything, you're like, oh my God, that's so sweet. and. He's already able to do that. Now he's walking. It's like when, when they do little stuff, you're almost, I feel more pride than I ever did for any of my accomplishment in my career, if, really? that, if that makes sense. And I think now looking back, I understand my parents in a way, why were they always, they always told me, I'm so proud of you. Every year I came back here, we're so proud. I'm like, yeah, I've heard this now a million times. But I think now that I have my own kids, I understand that more. That's it's just a different a different sense of pride than, than anything that I've ever had before. How did it impact life and retirement? It's been busy. We try and do, to travel with them. We have family all over the world. Uh, my parents are still in, in Germany. Uh, my wife is half Swedish, half Kenyan. So uh, we try to see family. We try to show them different cultures, different languages. And then when we're home, uh, you know, they start just started their sports already. And, and so I'm trying to be involved in, in that and take him and watch him. And uh, so it's been it's been a fun three years. Honestly, it's been it's been flown by. Did I read uh, three languages you're teaching your kids? We're trying. So I, I speak German with them. Mm-hmm. Um, wife is speaking Swedish with them. And, uh, and of course, English is because they live here, it's natural. And when I talk German to them, all they talk back is English. So then I got to translate in my head and then, then talk German again. So that's, <laughs> that's sometimes a little bit challenging uh, with three languages. It's easier if, if me and my wife would speak one language and then they would hear that all day. But I got to speak English with my wife. So really, they, all they hear all day is English. Only when I address them is when, I, when they hear German. And so. The, the oldest, I would say, she's nine now. She understands everything, but she still only talks uh, English back. Well, we'll see. Maybe I'll give her a couple more years, and maybe she'll uh, she'll she'll speak more. Uh, so it was a, a snowy night in uh, February 2010, uh, an event for sports and economic development. Uh, I guess you agree to get auctioned off on a couple dates, but there was somebody else you end up meeting that night too. 
I don't remember where you're going. Isn't, isn't that where you met your wife? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Come on. My bad, my bad. Uh, yeah, so I was, um, I was going to a charity. It was actually the, during the All-Star game. The okay. NBA All-Star game was in, uh, was in Dallas that year, 2010, in the new uh, Cowboys facility, which everybody was super excited about. One of those nights leading up to it uh, was a charity event. And I ended up meeting uh, Jessica. I knew, I knew her, uh, her old boss, and I went over there to say hi, and, and she was there, and we started talking, and you know, now it's... Uh, this summer, 10 years marriage. So time has, has flown by, three kids, but uh, that was, uh, that, that, that night took an unexpected turn for sure. A good proposal story? I mean, not really. I didn't want to really go too overboard and get a million people involved. So I just, uh, I did it on Valentine's Day, um, which was um, really sweet. We had an, a lovely, lovely evening, lovely dinner, but it's not like, we were in a helicopter or, on a, or a balloon ride or nothing too fancy. How were the nerves going into the proposal? I was good. I knew this, this, this is what we both wanted and um, was looking forward to the wedding. And, you know, since we, we have family all over the world, we did like a whole summer of weddings. Uh, we, we had a, a wedding with, with just close family in, in the Caribbean. Uh, her mom threw us a wedding party in Kenya, and then we had a, uh, a big party here for everybody in my family here in Dallas. But the wedding in Kenya was something else. So uh, we get there, and uh, Jess's mom has told her, it's just a little get-together, you know, people want to see you and celebrate you guys. But yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect, so uh, I get there, and, and Jess tells me, I remember, just, just keep an open mind uh, today. And I'm like, sure, whatever, let's have some fun, it's a beautiful day. So we get there. They take Jess away right away. Uh, like no, I don't. I have, I have no idea what's happening. I walk on the ground. There's three or four massive tents. There's like hundreds and hundreds of people there. <laughs> I'm like, this is a small get together here. Like I was already crazy shocked. So then I'm like, what are they doing to Jess? Um, the first thing that happened was I had to play a game. Like five or six girls were covered, and I couldn't see them. And my job was to find my wife. And if I don't, I'd have to pay like a fine or had to buy a goat or something. And then it got a little tricky. Like, there were two or three of them that were <laughs> sort of similar size. And I'm kind of like going, I couldn't touch them. I, couldn't, I wasn't supposed to talk to them. But I think I must have whispered something in German because I know Jess speaks German or understands German. She lived there for a year. And, uh, and so I heard her giggle, and then I think, I, I, which was a little bit of cheating, uh, I admit, but uh, that's how it all started. And it was just a, a, a wonderful ceremony of, of, of different stuff happening. And they asked me if I, if I can kill a goat, and I was like, that's, that's not my style. Can you guys kill it and, and then grill it? And then I had to feed her a part of the ribs, which means symbols. I'm, I'm going to be part of her life. I had to feed her part of her shoulder, which means I'm going to carry her for, for the rest of her life. So it was an, an unbelievable experience that, uh, that, that I'll never forget. Um, and we partied basically 24 hours or something insane. So it was, it was a good time. Retirement. How long did you know you were done before you told anybody else? I felt it that year, I think, um, but I didn't really want to announce it. I didn't really want that whole farewell tour. But then I ended up getting it anyways, because people saw I think I was struggling. So I think it started with actually with, with, with Doc Rivers at the Clippers game, I think, you know, when, when he took the mic, right? The, the game was over. 
this fourth quarter, uh, we had lost. So I'm kind of just standing there. The time's running out, and he calls a timeout. We're like, what is he doing? Like, why is he calling a timeout? We're getting mad. And then he goes up to the mic. I'm like, what is he doing? And then he's like, hey, Dirk, amazing career, and get up, everybody get up. And so I was like, I was almost embarrassed, right? Like, I've never never felt this before. Did it, did it like, touch you, though? Yeah, of course. Work? It was unbelievable, unbelievable gesture. At the time, I was still in the moment, and we had just lost the game. And I don't think I could enjoy it as much as I would now. And then all of a sudden, I get to road games after All-Star game. And, um, you know, I was invited to play in an All-Star game because people were thinking it was my last year. And so that whole thing kind of snowballed. And then everywhere we played after All-Star on the road, people were giving me standing ovations when I subbed in. And so I ended up getting a farewell tour without really announcing that I will retire. But in my head, I kind of knew the last few months and weeks was really tough. I couldn't practice anymore, which, which I love. Um, I just I could only play the games. And it was just, I just health-wise, just wasn't, wasn't holding up anymore. So leading up to the last few weeks was, was pretty emotional for me. But I never really let it out. But I, I knew that's, uh, that that was going to be it. How would the emotion come out in you, even if you didn't show it publicly? I mean, just knowing that I'm walking in the arena one last time uh, to, to play or whatever practice days, we're all lifting weights and somebody's making a joke and I'm in the middle of it. You know, I'm always trying to lighten the situation, always joking with guys. And um, I knew I, w- I would miss that. I knew I'd miss the camaraderie a little bit, the road trips. You said you sometimes wonder if it was worth playing those last two seasons. Why? <clears throat> Well, you know, we, we weren't very good. It's not like we were still chasing the, the championship. And and I have some health problems now with a little bit of uh, foot stuff. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. I played 21 years. I'm proud of that with one franchise, which is a record. I don't want to sit here and say it was a mistake to play two more years. Um, I don't know what I would do now if I would be in the same situation again. I'll probably still play again. Um, but it was, it's been an, an incredible journey. And... You know, I'm glad that I did play 21 because at the end I got to play with Luca and, and be there for him one year and, and kind of show him a little bit of the ropes and, and develop a little bit of relationship with him. And now he's taken, obviously, this franchise back to, to new heights. You miss it at all? I miss, uh, of course, some of the games, the competing. I think when I miss it most is uh, the Mavericks had an unbelievable run last year in the playoffs, yeah. and I wanted to be there and I wanted to support. So I went to almost every playoff game last year, home and on the road. That was hard. Knowing that you won't have that feeling anymore, you know, you make a big play and silencing the crowd or, or firing up the home crowd, and that is an adrenaline rush I don't think you can get anywhere else in retirement. So you said around the time you were retiring, uh, I want to travel, I want to enjoy my family that sacrificed so much over the last years and see my kids and then go from there. I'm sure after a year or two of doing that, something has to come and find my passion. Thoughts on that today? I would say I'm still in that same mode. Um, I'm still sort of, I would say, in the in-between phase where I enjoy being with the kids and the family. We do travel a lot, but then I do a bunch of stuff, little things to just see where, where is it going to take me? Um, is it going to be with the Mavericks? Is it going to be internationally with FIBA? Or I think one thing is clear that I'm going to stay around basketball. You know, I've learned a lot the last couple of years about business and 
you know, took some classes at Harvard Business School. All that's cool, but I don't think that's where, where my passion is. Uh, you know, the passion is always and has always been sports and was always basketball. So, you know, my mentor Holger always said to me uh, that he he wishes that one day I will do the same for somebody that, that he has done for me, and that's take him in when they're 15, show them the ropes. I can see where I'm, I can like that, but I don't think I'm quite there yet. I think I still need more, a little more separation from the game. Because um, once you do that, I think I want to be all in. What were the classes at Harvard Business School like? It's uh, one, I did one online last year for a couple of months. Uh, it was business management. Uh, which I gotta say for me is, is hard. Uh, you know, all these guys that are in the class from all over the world, 400, 500 people or whatever, they all have like CEO position or CEO of big companies. So, you know, they're in that environment every day and they went to college for it, right? And I'm, I'm sitting in this class and I get all this material and I'm, I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed. It was a, a cool experience, but it was, it was harder than I thought. It, on the website it says, yeah, you know, it takes like, six to seven hours a week uh, to kind of get through the, the, the stuff. And it took me sometimes 10, 15 hours a week. I was sitting there. So I'm reading stuff. Then sometimes I had to Google because I didn't understand. Or they were like, hey, write a quick email to your boss. Such and such thing happened. I'm like, I don't even know how to write an email to my boss. So I'm, I'm doing all this research on the side. So it was it was hard, but it was it was cool. Uh, I think I learned a lot. So you mentioned walking in. You remembered we caught up at Tony Larusa's charity event a, a few years back, and you were pretty well glued to the the speakers. I mean, funny but, that you saw that. Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly it like meant something to me. That was just a, a learning thing. I wanted to see what these guys are talking about, uh, about leadership, about all sorts of stuff, and it was uh, I found it super interesting. I've been told. Um, by, by somebody close to you that I've never seen Dirk happier than he is at this moment. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. I can see that. Um, I think what always kept me on the edge was, was a little bit of the pressure. Uh, even in the summers when, when I'm off, I'm still thinking basketball. I'm still thinking I need to stay in shape. What can I do better? I just think it's that that's pressure is, is away, it's off now. And I'm, I can do, I can let go, I can do what I want. I can travel without looking for a gym and a workout room every time. I can, I think that's, that's, that's helped me kind of be more at ease. Now that I'm done with basketball, to me, I'm like, I'm in the world learning now. I'm, I'm learning new stuff. I'm my own boss. I can do what I want. I can pick and choose. Um, so I think that's something that, uh, of course, a luxury that I didn't have for, for a long time. And I've, I've enjoyed it for, for three years now, but I'm sure there's another challenge out there for me. But yeah, I'm loving family life and, and the kids, so I'm, I'm in a good, good spot. I understand you've said b before that if not basketball, you thought maybe you would have gotten into academics. And when I heard that, I'm like, what, what do you mean? You were a bad student and you almost dropped out of school. There was a time where actually I wanted to go to high school uh, <clears throat> in the U.S. for a while. But then I met Holger when I was 15 and he's like, get your high school degree here in Germany. And he kind of helped me, push me through. And uh, that was an important time for me to, to meet him. 
but no, there is a business uh, study in, in Germany that uh, they, they say, which is actually a bad thing to say, but if you don't know what you want to become in life, you just study that business and then it kind of sets you up for, for all sorts of jobs. You know, my parents had a, had a painting business uh, growing up and um, so my dad, really wanted me to take that over. And, and it was like a, a 40 employee. Yeah, it was a business. nice mid-size, mid-size company, uh, painting houses inside, outside, sometimes on vacation in, in the summer. I'd, I'd go work there and uh, it was hard. And to this day that he claims that I said, oh, this smells like working here, I'd rather go to the MBA. I must have been maybe 15, 16 when he bought that place. I don't remember saying that to him, but uh, both my parents claim that. Um, but I think now, now he sold the business because my, my sister didn't take it over. I, of course, never came back to take it over. So that was, that was a little bit of emotional time for him, for something that he built for 50, 60 years. And your parents were some of the best athletes in Germany of their kind of yeah, generation. Yeah, they, they were good. They were good athletes. I wouldn't say they were the best. How did they uh, influence you? I just basically grew up in gyms. Um, my mom was playing basketball and my dad was a handball player and they both played tennis recreationally. So every weekend I was either with my dad uh, watching handball, I was with my mom playing basketball. We were on the tennis courts with their friends. Um, so that's all I remember growing up. That's all I wanted to do is, is all I was interested in. I didn't, I didn't play little cars or Lego or anything. I, was, I wanted to do sports and I was, I was always around sports and um, yeah. What do you think you learned from them? The discipline for sure. Um, what, I, what I liked about them that this, they never really told me I had to do something. They always gave me my own choice and that's something I want to do with my kids give them the freedom and don't push them into anything that they don't want to do. And so that, uh, that was really impactful for me because uh, when, I, when I quit tennis and I quit handball, both my parents weren't extremely happy because I was decent in both sports and they thought, you know, maybe I could take the next level, but. Your dad really was not happy about handball, He was handball, not happy right? about handball. He thought I could have been a decent Bundesliga or German national team player in handball. Um, in what ways were your parents tough? Just, you know, just show respect. I think that's, that's the major thing. If, uh, if we weren't respectful to, to them or uh, other children or other, other adults, I think that, that made them really mad the most. Uh, everything else, they were super cool. I mean, my dad is so fun that he, even to this day, when I go out with my friends in Wurzburg, he would, he would join. I mean... Everybody loves him. He's got this funny personality. He's always joking around. But when it was time to be serious and he said something, then that had to be respected. And I, I really like that, actually. And I think um, he's been uh, such a great role model for me that I'm, I'm trying to do that with my kids. I, I want to be the fun playing dad. I'm laying on the ground wrestling with them. But also when it's time to go or some time to do something and, and I say something, then, you know, we have to get it done. So uh, finding that, I think, a mix is sometimes hard, but uh, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a fun journey. Explain the situation where, when you were playing tennis, you were accused of being two years older than you actually were. Yeah, of course. Uh, there is a picture that I still see. I think it's at my parents' house. And the guy I'm playing is probably barely up to my waist. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable how big I was and how little he was. And so, of course, you know, parents sometimes are like... Is this guy really born 78? Because uh, he's, 
he's almost seven feet. No, I'm joking, but I was, I was way in the six feet already at, you know, 11, 12. I was always super tall. I was, I would say as a teenager, I was taller than most of the teachers already. It's 15, I was almost, yeah, almost seven feet, I would say. I was, uh, and didn't your parents at one point talk to the pediatrician about trying to stunt your growth? That is true. Uh, we went to, to go to the doctor because it was getting a little uncomfortable. I mean, I was at this point two meters something, which is like, yeah, six, 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 seven. Uh, and I was obviously still growing. I didn't want to be, you know, eight feet tall. I wasn't sure if, I'm, if there's something wrong or I could get close. I mean, I was, I, it, was a, it was weird. It was a tough did, time. Did you school. think something might be wrong I, with I'm you? not sure. I wasn't sure. I mean, I, don't, I didn't see anybody else this tall uh, around. So uh, we just wanted to make sure that everything is okay. And, and they uh, x-rayed, I think, here, my wrist here for the growth thing and uh, the plates. And it was still wide open, they said. So, uh, and he predicted at the time that I would be like 6'10", 6'11". And I said, well, that's not bad. I mean, that's, I, can, I can do that. If he would have said, you're going to be seven, eight, mm -hmm. then I probably, probably would have thought about maybe a little hormone treatment or something. And then I ended up being now a little over it, actually. I'm now seven with shoes, probably seven, one. But at the time, yeah, it was challenging. I mean, and growing up there in the 80s, they didn't have that much clothes for big guys. I, sometimes they have, we had friends travel to the U.S. I remember, hey, bring me the longest pair of jeans that you can find. Or, I would wear one pair of shoes the entire year to, to school and just, uh, just uh, you know, size 15, 16, 17s wasn't, wasn't around uh, in, in their 80s, uh, late 80s. So it was, uh, it was challenging at times. Uh, Skeletor? So there is a, uh, a show, I'm not sure if they have it here, it's a cartoon called He-Man. He was this superpower, a big fighter, and he was the good guy basically saving the world with this uh, battle cat, was his little cat that he had. And one of the bad guys in that show was, was Skeletor, and he was basically just a skelet, and, and you know, you could see through him, but he was the mean bad guy, and so, of course, kids are pretty ruthless, as we all know, uh, and, and so the, they would call me Skeletor for a while because I was obviously skinny. And then we'd go, we'd have to go in PE, we'd have swimming, and everybody obviously was in bathing shorts, and my ribs were literally sticking out here, here everywhere, I was so skinny. And, uh, and then that was my nickname for a year or so was, uh, was Skeletor, so. And while it might be funny now, it, it was not then. I mean, it was no, like, it was, it was funny. like painful, you know, right? Yeah, I was a shy guy and, and, and hearing that, and then I didn't want to take my shirt off uh, anymore. It's just teasing, I guess, but uh, when you're, I'm, I've always been a sensitive guy. And of course that was, that was weird for me. And in a way I always tell the story that maybe that's why I ended up at basketball because uh, it was easy for me. Nobody asked me, hey, how's the air up there? Where, and, and, you know, in tennis or in, in handball, I was always the tallest. And so I think in a way, I was, of course, I was, I was talented in basketball. It, it was fun for me, but it also made me feel comfortable. Did those days make you self-conscious in a way that you still carry to this day? I mean, now I, I, I laugh about it a lot more, you know, going in their room or whatever, but it, it always will be that way. If a guy walks in who's 7'1", people are automatically gonna stare. It doesn't matter if they recognize me, I can go in there somewhere in the middle of nowhere 
and you duck in to go under, uh, under uh, uh, the doorway and you come in, people are just going to stare. Um, I didn't love that uh, early in, in my life either, the, the constant or, or the, the whisper and the pointing, like look at this lurch over here. Uh, but now I'm like, it's fine, you know, I get along with it and it's, it's funny, but uh, as a teenager, that's definitely something I didn't, I didn't love the attention, so it's, uh, that made me definitely uncomfortable at times. And when friends would ask you to go to the pool, you just would stay home? I would stay home and then play sports, which I love that anyways, um, but I'm sure if I wouldn't have been so embarrassed about how skinny I was, I would have probably gone to the pool a couple more times with my friends, but that way I just stayed home. I shot in, the, in our yard, we had a little basketball uh, goal. Even my mom would look down. She didn't really know what was going on, so she would look down from the window and be like, what are you doing? It's like 100 degrees out here, just go, go to the pool. And I'd be like, no, no, I like, I like sports, I'm not going. Why do you think you didn't share that? I'm a guy that, soaks everything in uh, and very sensitive but never really talks about stuff and I I deal with it in in my own space in my own head in my own body and um, and so it, that's how I just dealt with stuff so I don't think my, my parents were aware that that I was embarrassed uh, that, that I have bones sticking out everywhere I don't think they were aware of that situation at the time did I read this correctly, that you were popular in high school because of bubblegum? <laughs> well, you really got, you guys really did, uh, did some deep research, but I was always hungry, and uh, so either I had a little gum, which of, of course is not allowed in school, but I always kind of like had a half, just a little piece, something just to nibble on, and so uh, some of my friends would always come, and like, hey, do you have something? And I'm like, here's a little piece of gum, but... Yeah, that's, uh, I forgot I said that, that's, that's, that's good research. How did the uh, hairstyle change after Boris Becker won Wimbledon? You know, hairstyles, I tried, I tried way too many things uh, in, in my career, in my life, but um, that was cool. I was a huge tennis fan, and I remember going to the hairdresser and I was like, uh, I, want, I want my hair cut like Boris, and she's like, what? So she didn't make it red, but she made it sort of spiky, I guess. And Boris was one of my first, uh, you know, idols that I loved watching. He was such a warrior. He won Wimbledon when he was 17. Um, just a, a great, great player. Why do you consider basketball a girly sport? I think that was early when, uh, when I played handball and tennis. And handball, you know, I don't know, handball is not really big in the U.S., but it's really big in Europe. You can push somebody, you can hold him, you can even shove him to the ground at times and only get like a little bit of a penalty. And so to me, that was, uh, that was a tough sport. And my mom and my sister both played basketball. So to me, that was like, you know, you can't touch anybody. And, you know, if you bump somebody too hard, it's two shots. And so, uh, to me, growing up, there were just uh, us boys, we play, we play handball. When I was about 10, 11, they were like, hey, you're so tall, you just come to one practice. And so I joined the school team, we're doing well right away. And, and then I really started really loving the, the, the sport. And then, and then I joined the, the, the club with my cousin, who was a year older than me. He kind of took me, he's like, just see one practice to see if you like it. And that was it. Really? I loved it, loved it from day one. Uh, start, and never, never stopped again. And, and explain the the school gym, by by the way. I, I mean, the the court, nothing like this. Yeah, it's probably half, half the size. Basketball, 
wasn't a big sport uh, in Germany at all at the time, so there were really no nice school gyms. If you want to play basketball or, or really any sport in, in Europe, you usually join a club. The club have the nice facilities, the nice gyms. So the school gyms are usually super small, and it was like it was this wooden backboard, and I mean, it was old school, but it was enough for us to run around a little bit, do some layups. Um, that's where I really started was in, in the school team. Holger, um, what impact did he have on your life? He was just a huge mentor, and I owe him everything because I wasn't sure at time of 15 where, where this journey in basketball would take me, and he taught me everything. He taught me how to move, uh, to shoot, uh, and, and also helped me off the court uh, with, with stuff, with school, and just growing into the person I wanted to, to become. So, What would he have you read? Uh, every year for a birthday or Christmas, he would give me books. And I'm like, oh, great, another book, Holger. That's sweet. Great, great gift. Uh, but he always tried to brighten my horizon and, and, and learn different things. And some were novels, some were like books really hard to read for me about nature and physics. And uh, I'm just like, Holger, this is not. Like, <laughs> it takes me uh, years to get through this. You know, he had me play music. Uh, he wanted me to play the saxophone. So I played the saxophone for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, just, just, you know, open your mind up to other things, not just sports. And also at the time, we weren't sure if it's going to work out. So he said, you, the more well-rounded you are, it's going to help you in life better if you need a job later on or whatever. But yeah, that was his way of always trying to, to push me and, and push me to new limits. And you mentioned the saxophone. W what did he once have you dribbled to? <laughs> so we had uh, one of his friends was a, was a jazz musician, and he actually was his mentor when he started playing. And um, so the, the guy would sometimes come to practice. Uh, with his with his sax, and he would play the saxophone, and we'd have to dribble to the rhythm, and then you know mix up the dribbles and and make the basically the bouncing sound uh, as the drums. And Holger would call it dance the game. He didn't want us to play like robots, right? He never growing up, even when he was coaching our, he didn't want us to run all these plays and you just go set this pick and you set another pick. His philosophy was everybody's got to have fun and enjoy. It's like a the sport is like a jazz band. There's five guys out there. Everybody has their own skill level, and they're, they're all good at something. And he always said when, when somebody did a good move, you're like, ooh, b-ball is jazz. Explain how he was trying to help you as a defender by fencing. So the, the, the long story is he, he never liked weightlifting. He thought that I was still growing as I was as a teenager and it's just going to hurt my joints. So he, we basically tried to find things in the summer for me to do to, to keep the fun, uh, get a little bigger, a little stronger, or movement, better movement. So we tried all sorts of other different sports to, to see, hey, what training can we steal from them? What's, what's good for, what could work for us? Um, so we rowed a lot. We did a rowing camp every year in the summer, for the, which is good all, all around power. We went to like a boxing training just to see how they train and warm up. And, and then fencing was, uh, was, was on, the, on the schedule once. I'm like, I don't even have a suit or anything. What, what are we doing? So the, the, this club made me a whole fencing suit and uh, got to, to fence. And what's so good about fencing is they're, they're attacking but they're, while they attack, they also always play defense. So basically, Holger's 
philosophy there was on defense, basically you have to be active with your hands and without giving, selling out and giving too much up and somebody can just blow by you. So it was, it was a cool experience, uh, but as we all know, I think uh, defense wasn't really my strong suit. So I don't think the fencing took my defense to another level, but it was, it, it was fun to see. You end up getting 30 scholarship offers. Uh, you make visits to Cal, Stanford, Kentucky. I understand there might be at least a little regret that you didn't go to college. How much truth is there to that? Well, it would have been fun, I think. I think it was a good decision not to go, because at the time, late 90s, you know, the big guys, the, the game was still different. I didn't want to be a center. I didn't want to all of a sudden go to college, somebody put 20, 30 pounds on me and be like, hey, son, this shooting is nice, but we need you closer to the basket. And, the, the game is just wasn't as evolved as it is now, where the big guys all are outside and moving and shooting. And so if I, my whole career, if I talk to most of my teammates, they all said, hey, that, that year or two years or whatever, those years in college, they were amazing, just the camaraderie. And, and it's different in the NBA. You know, you play together, you have good, good buddies, but everybody goes their separate ways pretty much once the practice or the game's over and just that tight the tight unit that you are in college. I think I would have, I would have enjoyed that and, the, and life on campus a little bit. But um, I think for my career and, and uh, going was the right decision to go straight. There are rumors about the NBA lowering the draft age to 18 years old. Uh, what are your thoughts on that possibility? Well, I think it's been sort of weird the last few years. Some guys going to Australia for one year. Some guys going to the G League. I think you might as well have them come in out of high school if they're ready. The way guys are doing it is not, they don't really want to go to college anyways. And then if they do, at the end, they're worried about getting hurt. Then they don't play in the tournament, as we've seen in the last couple of years. That's just silliness to me. Uh, that's just silliness. So... Um, you might as well open it up if they're ready. The scouts would know, the, the kid will know, the family would know, and then uh, we'll, we'll go from there. But what's been happening in the last few years, I don't think is, is good for the game. You grew up you know, in a, a small town in Germany where the X-ray was uh, first discovered. I think your first trip to America, you packed your own towel. Uh, how did the states compare to what you were expecting? You know, all I saw was the show Dallas a little bit, my parents were watching. And so this was like, you know, the, on the countryside. I was a little shocked how big the city was already then. Uh, and all the skyscrapers, and I had no idea what, what to expect. And I mean, it, it kind of blew my mind. Of course, there was a, a little bit of a language barrier there when I got here. It was a little bit of a culture shock because I, I, I lived with my parents my entire life and then not only am I one or two hours driving away, I'm 11 flight hours away. Right. So uh, it was hard not knowing anybody, not having my, my family close. Uh, and that was, that was hard. You know, my mentor Holger, when something was, was wrong, I'd, I'd call him and be like, there were probably times where we were on the phone every day, before every game, then after the game. If something would like really be bad, he would show up two days later, he would be there for me and, and we'd practice or we, we'll, we'll talk and that usually helped me a lot. And then, and then I always give uh, Steve Nash and Michael Finley a lot of credit because they were, 
they were so, so great to me from, from the beginning, how they supported me. Steve would always take me out when I'm homesick or we'd go to movies or dinner. What would you say your lowest point was, though, in those early days with being homesick? There were games where I didn't play at all, and I've never envisioned that. I've never um, felt that in my, in my life, in my career so far. That was, those are tough times when you don't even get subbed in at all. But I think it sometimes is normal when things are not going your way that doubt creeps in a little bit. So I was, I was thinking, was this the right decision? Should I have stayed in Europe? Should I have gone to college? Depressed? I mean, I don't know if, I, if it got that bad, but I always, what I did was I kind of worked my way through stuff. You know, if I didn't play, while the other guys were doing media, I was already on the bike. Uh, I was getting a sweat or I went back out, got some shots up. Um, the next day I would show up two hours early for practice and just, you know, if I don't play, I, I got to work hard and I got to get better. So you, you can play me. And off the court, yeah, I mean, homesick I was, was the worst. I think it never got to the point where I'm like, I'm out of here, everything is not working, I'm going back home to Europe. It never got that far. I heard uh, you ate fast food for lunch and dinner. You were sleeping on a twin-size mattress and you were not cashing your paychecks. It was a little bit of a challenge to get going at the beginning. Um, I was really fortunate here to have a lady, Lisa. She was the head of accounting, and they kind of say, hey, Lisa, why don't you take care of Dirk a little bit, help him out when he's struggling? So every couple of weeks, um, I'd go in her office. I didn't even know how to write a check. So she's like, hey, listen, this is where you put your name, this is where you put your date, and then here's the number, here you write it out. And I, I knew none of that. I never had to write a check in my life. So it was, uh, yeah, at the beginning, it was just pretty rough. Uh, I bought, I had an apartment and I rented, and there was nothing in it. So I got, I remember I, I got a twin-size bed, I think. I had one couch that was, you were able to pull that out if I have a guest coming. If I was there to sleep a few hours, and then we were off again for a game or a uh, road game. So I wasn't really home that much in, in my first season anyways. Then for season two, things gotten a little better. Actually, my first year, I had a rental car, just a small, normal, compact car. So every time I pull up to the practice facility or to a game, the other guys are just killing me, right? What are you doing? Buy a car. It took you a minute to figure out how to get the AC to work? <laughs> yeah. It was like 80s, 90s out. And I'm going to the game, and I'm in a full sweat showing up. I had both uh, my windows rolled down. And I show up sweating to the game, and they were like, what are you doing? I'm like, man, my, my car is super hot. I'm not sure what's going on. And, uh, and, they, and they said, do you see this button here? AC, you have to push that in. So when that, when that light is on, that means the AC <laughs> is on. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Because my car in Germany didn't have AC. How did the diet change eventually? Yeah, you know, beginning of my career, I think in the late 90s, we didn't know that much about nutrition like, like you do now. Now everybody's vegan and gluten-free and whatnot. Uh, back in the days, uh, maybe there was that wave slowly starting, but I didn't really care about it. I didn't think it would make a difference for me that, that much. So, I mean, it was basically like burgers and chicken sandwiches after games, uh, pasta before the game. And, um, and then, you know, as you get older, I think that's normal. You, you care more about your body. You learn more about your body. And 
what you put in it. And so I completely changed my diet when I was about 27, 28. Did it actually help? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, I would I always say I would probably go back now and do it earlier. But I was just, I was just in my prime. We had just made the finals in 06. We lost to, uh, uh, to the Miami Heat in a tough, super tough um, final series. Then I only had a few weeks off, and then uh, I played the World Championships in, in, in Tokyo. And there, I just couldn't get going. I didn't feel it. I was like, hey, I'm in my prime. I'm, what, 27, 28. I should be feeling great. Why am I not feeling good? And then I just started reading more and more, and that's when I changed, yeah, basically everything. You know, cut out sugar, no sodas, no, no desserts during the season, barely any alcohol, maybe run the All-Star break every now and then, but usually in my last 10 years of my career, I didn't drink during the season, basically cut out all the red meat. And so it was pretty, pretty strict there for the last, yeah, 10, 12 years of my career. And then if you splurged briefly, you would feel it immediately. Yeah, I mean, when, when you have a lot of sugar, that, of course, increases the inflammation in your body, and, and then, yeah, you just don't feel as active as uh, when, uh, in practices. But I would only splurge there for, for a few weeks after the season and really have a good time. And then once, once I started training again with Holger in the summer, it was, it was back, to, back to the routine. And weren't you starting to become conscious of heart problems that big men would have? Well, this is just now more really in retirement. A couple of teammates that I played with already passed away. And uh, that's something, you know, that should be on every, every athlete's, but also big men's radar. And, you know, you have to keep training, keep training the heart a little bit. Um, and so I'm, I ride a lot of bike just to, you know, keep the heart pumping and, uh, and get a little workout. After the 06 NBA Finals loss, uh, I think you and your inner circle are up well past 6 a.m. Take me into that moment and kind of describe the scene and what's on your mind. Well, 06 was one of the most frustrating losses of my career. Uh, we were, you know, basically up 2-0 going to Miami in the finals. We were only two wins away. We're thinking this is, this is a wrap. Um, the... Um, the, the Dallas Morning News, the paper here, had printed the parade route. And then we go down there and we lose three straight. And then we come back here and we, we're up 20 in game six. And when they come back and we lose in six games. And I remember just being so frustrated. We were so close to winning. It's like your heart gets ripped out a little bit. And, uh, but I always said to myself, hey, we have a young team. I'm still in my prime. At the end of the day, I think we'll be, we'll be right back there. And then next year came, and we were rolling. We won 67 games. That was my MVP season. And we are the heavy favorites to win it all. Um, I'm feeling good. I'm playing my best basketball. And we run into a hot team with the Gold State, and we lose in the first round. And in a way, I was more disappointed and frustrated after that loss than I was after the finals loss. That was, I think, the low point of my career. Was it? I think so. Uh, How did getting, it affect you? Just, I didn't want to leave my house uh, for a while. Uh, the good thing is my dad was there, my, my sister were there at the time. Um, so they kind of, you know, talked to me a little bit and trying to build me back up. But uh, that was probably the most frustrated and disappointed I was. Um, what are you thinking about then? 
like I let my team down, I let the city down, because I didn't play well that round. Uh, they were a tough matchup for me. They played me with two or three smalls. Every time I dribbled the ball, somebody else was coming, ripping the ball away. And I just, I, that was not my series. And uh, for two weeks, I felt like embarrassed to, to leave the house. And then I wanted to leave basically right away. And, uh, and I told, I told uh, the Mavericks that I was basically, I'm out of here, I'm frustrated. And then the NBA called and said, uh, you can't leave. There might be a possibility you're winning the MVP. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Of all years, this year, I, I, don't, I don't even want it, right? Just keep it. But then I stuck around a couple more days and then they actually called and said, yeah, you, you won it. Because at the time, they were given the MVP away in the second round. Of course, we weren't in the second round, so I had to do a little press conference here during the second round. And it was, I remember I didn't, I didn't even sleep the night before. Uh, I knew Mr. Stern was coming to give me the trophy, and there was a big press, press conference, and uh, I wanted to be as far away as possible. That, that's the last uh, spot that I wanted to be was here, and I kind of, Got through it. Uh, I, I can't even remember what, what speech I gave, but uh, I know I was just so frustrated and embarrassed that we're not in the second round that uh, that, was a, that was a tough moment. Two years later, Dirk Nowitzki faced a low point off the court when his then fiance was shockingly arrested in his Dallas home during the 2009 playoffs. Nowitzki knew her as Crystal Taylor, but she reportedly had 24 different aliases and outstanding warrants in multiple states. Well, I was, I was as shocked as everybody. You know, I had no idea when this happened. So um, that was a very, yeah, very tough time because usually I did a great job always keeping my private life private. So for me to all of a sudden have my private life all out in the open was, was something completely different. And was, I was super embarrassed about the whole situation. Um, and it was literally in the middle of the playoffs too. So it was, it was a huge moment. And to this day, this Denver series that I played in 09 was one of the best series I've ever played in my life. I averaged like over 30. And I think it's because all the turmoil I had in my private life kind of really helped me focus in and enjoy in a way, uh, have that joy to, to get away from it uh, during, during that series. When you first find out, how do you confront her? Uh, I'm, I don't really want to get into specifics on how, how all that went down. I needed a lot of support from, from Holger and, of course, my family, like I said, and close ones and friends, and uh, I don't really want to get and, into and you, specifics. And you changed your number and, like, email address almost uh, immediately, Yeah, right? of course. I, wasn't, I knew this was going to start, obviously, a big storm. Then we lost that series to Denver. Then, you know, it was a little bit of, like I said, the emptiness. And then you think about it all the time. Then I just wanted to go home and, and, and be with my family. And When you're in kind of those lowest points, like in, in the middle of it, what are you thinking about? How can I get through this? Um, look forward. Work my way through it. Um, look forward to basketball. Have my family there for me. I'm not sitting there and and pouring my heart out to them. It's just, it's just me being myself with them and they've known me for my entire life. And I, I think that's more the, uh, the cure for me to just to be around people that, that love me for who I am and, and, uh, 
and spend time with them that usually, you know, I don't get to spend as much time with my family anymore. So to have that time with them and... and, and yeah, but isn't that one different though? I mean, like it was the, your fiance at the time got, got arrested. And you uh, applied for custody of a, a kid that didn't exist because she said she was pregnant. Yeah, correct, which we didn't know at the time. Right. So it was heavy stuff. And I remember we had a press conference first that I was uh, very nervous and anxious and uh, embarrassed. And I got to say, it was a, a tough time. I was told that one of the reasons it was hard for you was, you know, you made the decision to get married. And that was kind of one of the first big decisions you'd made completely on your own. Yeah, I'm not sure. I thought that was the one and we were we were both on the same page. Um, so, of course, that was, uh, yeah, it was a shock to me. How do you grow as a person um, going through like a, an experience like that? Well, it's, yeah, it's adversity. It's, uh, you have to go through something that, that pushes you because I was super embarrassed uh, to go out in public. I was, uh, and, and to me, I take stuff, I'm a sensitive guy. I take things very hard. And, and so, yeah, I was, I was hard on myself. How could this happen? How, how did I let this happen? It's okay to, to make mistakes though. And I think after the first initial couple of weeks where I'm embarrassed, I'm like, oh God, this is, you know, all everybody now is gonna look at me and be like, oh, did you see what happened to him? I went home right away, I saw my family. Uh, we went on a vacation together with my sister with her kids and for two weeks. And then after that, I was, I was already fine. I was like, you know what? This, this could have happened to anybody. It just happened to me. Uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on. I'm gonna be the same lighthearted guy that has fun with people. And it was just, uh, it was just a mistake and uh, I gotta l learn from it. You can't close yourself away now from, for everybody and, and just go into this little shell. You know, life goes on, you, you made a mistake and uh, you, uh, you still have to be the same guy. You go from a low to a, a career life high in, um, a, a matter of less than a, a couple years, uh, you know, fa fast forward, it's game six of the NBA Finals. I think there are four seconds left and you're already uh, in the locker room. What's on your mind? When I made it to the Olympics a couple years earlier, uh, I completely broke down. I was crying, I was hugging teammates. And so I kind of felt that same feeling coming on and I just thought, hey, collect your thoughts a little bit, go back to the locker room, have some tears, and then, and then you can come back out. And that's exactly what I did. I needed a few minutes by myself, uh, even though our PR guy, the NBA PR guy, were chasing me down there. Where are you going? You got interviews, you got the trophy. And you didn't want to come back out, No, right? I didn't. At the time I just laid, there was, there was a little bench in the, in the Miami shower and I laid on that bench and had some tears and thought about, you know, all the hard work that it took to get there, all the people that helped me to get there. And um, so it was just uh, an emotional moment. And then uh, now Scott was saying the PR, you, you know, you're getting the trophy. And I was like, give it to somebody else. I don't want it. But then after like five minutes, I was totally fine. I, I'm now, of course, I'm super happy. I went back out. The photo is everywhere with me lifting the trophy for the first time. And and hugging everybody and being with my teammates. So I'm glad they pushed me back out. Do you regret not allowing those close to you to fly in for the finals? I do a little bit after, yeah. My sister, I think, sometimes brings it up. It just rubs it in every now and then. I think what happened was in 06, we were up 2-0, and 
they, my dad and my sister came in, and uh, we ended up losing the finals. We didn't win another game. So I didn't want, uh, I wanted to, whatever we were doing in 11 there in the playoffs to get us there, I didn't want to change anything. I don't want more people here now in my house. I'd, so I ended up saying, no, please don't come now to the finals. And uh, I do regret that a little bit. But you know how athletes sometimes are there. They live in their own heads and they're all head cases. And uh, so at the time I was like, no, I, uh, I want to keep the same crew. After you qualified for the Olympics, uh, your dad comes into the locker room after. How well do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was already an emotional mess there uh, in the locker room as soon as we made it, and I was just laying on one of those physio benches. I had to rush back out to do an, a live interview with, with, uh, with the live TV that's filmed us uh, for years. And after, like, finally, I think five or ten minutes, I've finally gotten myself back together. I'm about to go out, and then comes my dad. And then, I don't know, I broke down again and I ended up not even making it out to the interview, which the guy is still not happy that I, that I didn't come out and do that live, live interview. For real? Him. Yeah, he brings it up every now and then. But I've followed the Olympics ever since I can remember, you know, just and, and living in the village. It was just such a dream of mine to, to accomplish that. And uh, when we did, I just uh, I broke down. How true is it that David Hasselhoff once came looking for you at the All-Star game? <laughs> Oh, you're bringing up some great classics. David was, was huge back in the day in Germany with, with Baywatch and Knight Rider, which Knight Rider was my favorite show growing up with the, hey, kid, come here and pick me up, right? I mean, that was, that was so cool. I think it was in our 2006 run to the, to, the, to the finals when we ended up losing to Miami, but I ended up in that whole playoff run. I made some uh, some big free throws when when the game was on the line, and one of the reporters said, hey, "How in this pressure situation, how do you stay so cool and relaxed?" And I said, "Well, one of the methods that me and Holger always tried was sing a song. You know, just not to not freeze up, to not let the pressure get to you." And so one of the guys that asked me, "Oh yeah, what song is it then, actually?" And uh, and you know, there's some a couple guys who were, were funny guys from a radio station, and they knew David Hassel was big in Germany. And he threw in, "Oh, it was uh, looking for freedom from David Hasselhoff." And then I was like. Sure, whatever. Next thing you know, he kind of blew up. And, uh, and, and, and David uh, came, I think, uh, one round later, he actually came to our game. And uh, we got to spend some, a couple minutes. And then the following year, the All-Star game was in Vegas. And I'm warming up. I'm feeling good. You know, I'm hearing Dirk. I turned around. It was David Hasselhoff front row at the All-Star <laughs> game. So just super funny how that, how that all came together. But, Did you uh, ever tell him it wasn't true? Uh, I don't think I did. It didn't really matter. I was a fan anyway, so yeah, right. from my teenage years. and Was it Counting Crows, Mr. Jones? That, that was at actually... the time, yeah, because okay. we were all routine-driven. So when that worked one time, I, I stuck. For that playoff run, it's, that's, that's the song I had in my head. So can you still recite all the lyrics from a Shaq rap song? I actually can. How, you can? How, how, right, did let's you hear. Know, how did you know that? <laughs> we, we do our homework. <laughs> So I was, I was such a huge NBA fan, and then I uh, was a huge Shaq fan. I also loved his rap music. Uh, you, know, the, the, you know I got skills, man. You know I got skills. That song, and there, there were a few others. There was one with the Fushnickens that I loved. Uh, it was called, What's Up, Doc? Can We Rock? And then at the end, he comes in. This is a bit embarrassing, but uh, there, was a, there was a time where I can 
is his entire spiel, I could wrap that. Uh, I'm not sure I can still get the whole thing going, but he's like, I'm a hoopa, hyper, protected by viper. When I'm not a hoopa, you better decipher. Uh, it better make, you better make some funky decisions, because I'm going to be a shack knife and cut your position. Forget Tony Danza, I'm the boss. When it comes to money, I'm like Dick the Frost. And then, oh, I, I struggled over it, but that's, that, was the, that was the one with the Fushnickens, and it was... You ever consider making your own? Ooh, I love music, loved, loved hip-hop my entire life, basically. Still think 90s music is, is still my favorite to this day, uh, but I don't think uh, I have any talent in making music. Dirk, you've mentioned your musical inclinations before. Well, I only know one song that I always kind of play. So I played the saxophone a little bit. And I heard you don't play sax anymore, you can't? No, what happened was uh, my, uh, at the time my teeth got knocked out, the front two. And you know at the sax, you kind of have to put your teeth there. And so I had like a brace there for a whole year. That, and then once I took that brace off, I never actually got back to it, um, but I played the guitar for a few years. My brother-in-law uh, is, is actually in a, in a Rolling Stones cover band. No, he's, no. he's a lead singer, he's the Mick Jagger and all the moves. And, uh, and so he taught me a few years. And it's like any, any, any I guess anything, any hobby, you, you, you get to a certain spot, it's fun, and you like it, and then if you don't really put a lot of work in, you don't get better, and you get stagnant, and then that's, that's I played the drums, I played the guitar, I tried the sax, I played the piano. I tried everything, but n I'm not good at anything. But the one thing I do remember is just this song. You guys probably know this song. by extreme. I mean, that's, that's basically basic stuff, but that's one song that I, that I always remember. The rest I kind of forgotten. I used to love Ben Harper. got you a piano and when, when I read that I'm like I didn't even know you yeah so, piano. so I was I was always talking with Carla it's, he's a huge music guy and so he's like do you have a piano I said I, I, I played growing up and I actually looking to, to get one and then just because I want to get back into it and then one of the seasons was over and I'm about to get off and leave for the summer and he goes hey uh, in four weeks something's coming to your house and it's a gift for me and everything you've done for my family. I'm like, four weeks? Well, what is that? And then, sure enough, a couple of weeks later, up shows a huge truck with a, with a Steinway seven-foot piano. And I'm like, what? So he, uh, he gifted that to me and opened it up. And it says, thanks for everything you've done for me and my family from Rick. And that was, that was super special. I mean, actually, now this circle closes. My, my kids play on, and they, uh, they all have piano lessons. So, uh, and I, unfortunately, never found a way back in it. I want to, but, uh, I, but all three kids play, and they enjoy the, they enjoy the piano. But, and I'm stuck with this little thing, but... <laughs> 
um, just, I should practice it a little more again. Mark Cuban, what do you remember from when he bought the team and your first recollection of how this guy's different? Well, it was a time where we didn't really quite know what to expect because, you know, some new owner, um, you know, he might bring a new coaching staff, his own people. I remember there was a period of, you know, yeah, not knowing what, what's going to come now. So I think that was, uh, that was the, the worst thing that we, we didn't quite sure how he was going to come in. And you guys were practicing on public courts. We practiced the on the time. public court still at, uh, at the Landry Center, yeah, which sometimes we'd come back at night to shoot with Steve and they'd had league games going. Right. So we'd, we'd shoot on one of the side baskets on the baseline so the ball doesn't go in. And then when they'd take a five-minute break, we'd run out, shoot a couple threes real quick. I mean, those were the old school days, yeah. But anyway, so when Mark bought the team, we were, there was some uncertainty there. Um, but he showed it pretty much right away that he's all in. Yeah, he, uh, he bought us a new plane. He wanted to build us a new arena. Um, he kept the coaching staff. And so he was all in on, 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 on trades and taking on money and, and spending money to, uh, to have us win. And so he basically turned this franchise around and, and put it on, back on the map. And, uh, and free agents wanted to come. And, and so that was, that was a wonderful time for me, as I remember. The beginning was very tough. And then once we started to get rolling, my third, my fourth year, Finn Nash was getting better and Van Exel. And we had, we had some, some amazing runs there. To me, of course, the championship was, will always be better than everybody. But those early days, once I got over my first disappointment that it's not working, was, was some of the best times we had. How about the best time you and Cuban ever had together? Well, there's plenty. You know, we've known each other now over 20 years. Uh, I always tell the story that he came to my bachelor party. You know, how many owners come to their players' bachelor parties? What about Jawan Howard's uh, birthday party? In the early days, we were just uh, we were having fun. It was he was uh, he was our number one supporter, and um, I loved it. And uh, but he also you know wanted to be a part with with us, and he was on every road trip. He was at every practice. And uh, of course, we were uh, we were having some fun as well, especially around the All-Star Games always. So uh, I don't necessarily remember that night as vivid as he does. I think that was more of a bad experience for him. But uh, we, we had a good time. July of 2010, I think you think you're going in to meet with him at his house to say you might be leaving. Uh, take me into that conversation and how it changed. Well, you know, in uh, in I never had really an agent, so Holger uh, kind of talked a little bit with the mass, but then he was like, hey, listen, I think Mark wants to talk to you. Why don't you just go over there and do it yourself? So that's, that's the agent I had. And so I went over to his house, and we just uh, we talked about the, the old times. We talked about the good times, the bad times. And it was like just talking to a friend, really, not, not your owner. And... We both got emotional, and I think we both agreed that I'm, I'm part of this team, I'm part of this organization, I'm part of this franchise and city, so let's just, let's just do it. Let's just uh, um, stay, and well, of course, I'd never really wanted to go anywhere anyway. Oh, you didn't? No, no okay. I didn't. 
but uh, we weren't quite sure. You know, I was a free agent. Uh, the last few years, we after 06, 07, we were the best team. We, we had declined. And so I was just, you know, making sure that we are, we're all in still. And, and then, of course, I, I, uh, I signed that four-year deal, and we won the championship in the first year after that. So. Oh, and it required you sacrificing a, a lot financially to make Yeah, I could, have signed, I could have signed a max deal, uh, and I decided to take a little less. To me, at that point, I had already, individually, I'd already done everything, uh, all-star, whatever, a bunch of times, and MVP, or whatever. I mean, you probably left somewhere between 70 and 90 million well, on the table over, over the course Well, that's later overall. At, yeah. that, at that contract, I didn't leave that much. Right. I don't want to give myself that much credit, but uh, later on, I could have signed another right. uh, couple of maxes. But first of all, I wanted to be here. The this, this city has been great to me from the beginning. Mark has been a loyal friend to me, even uh, on and off the court when stuff weren't going well. He was the first one to be there for me. So we just have a great relationship, and, and the city has been loyal to me, and I'm a loyal guy, so it always made sense to, for me to stay here. That's it for the sit-down portion. The interview then continued in our car ride. Tell about how you're adjusting this thing to be accommodating for you. Your, your knees are practically in the dashboard right now. Uh, yeah, this is still an old school one, so there's not that much room in it. Your typical car, like, I'd assume there's more space for you than that? Well, you know, as a seven-footer, no car is really amazing. Um, and you haven't had one custom, no, like, a, no. adjusted I'm actually in a, Right now, I'm in a Tesla. Okay. The X, which is super small. Where people, when I fold out of there, people are always laughing. And are you having to duck? A little bit in the car, so your yeah, head doesn't do hit this. the. I can do this. You got in any speeding tickets over the years? Uh, yeah, but I try to be good. Uh, you know, in Germany we get to ride a little faster. The autobahn. Uh, the autobahn. What's the fastest you've ever gone on the autobahn? I mean, miles, maybe 130, 40. I don't know. You're flying. I did about if you're 240, going 250 kilometers now, which is which is pretty fast. Since we're driving around town, I understand murals have been painted of you. Uh, uh, you got a key to the city. Been, it's been anything uh, that stands out on that front. It's been a fortunate uh, journey here. I got to say, you know, to stay here the whole time and fans have supported me from day one and, you know, never left. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at, I feel like I'm part of this community, which is uh, which is amazing. I feel like this is my my home now and uh, the street naming was unbelievable. Of course, the Jersey retirement a statue is coming this year. What have you heard about that? So I've been involved a little bit, but I don't want to be too involved. But uh, it's going to be fun. It's, I think it's going to go up at Christmas. Have you seen it? I've seen early parts. Um, just I met the artist, super cool. And I actually flew to Chicago uh, to meet with them. On my Jersey retirement last January, they uh, they showed a little miniature version of it, uh, so it's pretty cool. I mean, it, it's the one-legged fadeaway, of course. What an honor, right? I mean, I came here when I was 1920, not knowing anything. Well, I'm going to make it in this league, and now I have a freaking statue and it's on my own street. I mean, are you serious? It's insane, right? If you think about it. How about your first time playing against Michael Jordan? <sighs> That's a funny story. Huge Michael Jordan fan. To me, will always be the GOAT, right? So he retired after his sixth championship in 98. 
that was my first year. So uh, that was the lockout year. I come over uh, thinking he's with the Bulls, and he, he says, I'm retiring. I'm not doing it. So I was super frustrated and disappointed not getting to play against my hero. Then he comes back with the Wizards. I'm like, yes, I get to play against my guy, my idol. Uh, we have German media come in. Everybody knew this was a big deal for me. And so in the morning for shoot-around, uh, I had these tight shoes on that didn't really slide in easily. So I'm, I kick my, my foot into the, into the shoe, and I must have quickly turned a little bit, and a tendon slipped off. I ended up missing that game with a, with a, with a little tendon inflammation. And are you, like, devastated? Uh, I was crushed. But then I, we got to play him in Washington a few months later, and it was everything I always hoped for. We have matched up sometimes. He guarded me on a couple possessions, and I tried to post him up. I think I remember I missed, I missed the turnaround because I was so hyped that he was guarding me. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing to, to be on the court with him. That just watch him and he was he was basically 40 at that point he right. was still getting that buckets he was still i think of that home game he gave us like 40 i remember how about uh when kobe calls you up trying to recruit you to the lakers uh, i was always a huge kobe fan if you compare anyone to jordan he's as closest as it gets the way he moves the way he played the game uh, was basically a, a copy of it and when he had fourth quarters and games would already take over I would rush home our game would end at like 10 which is only what 8 there or 8 30 and so I would rush home eat and sit there and watch Kobe play the fourth quarter so I was always a, a fan of his and then uh, we've had obviously met numerous of times all-star games all sorts of things and then uh, he reached out to me during during free agency and, and that's of course I was honored I mean that's 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 Kobe uh, but I basically told him listen I'd, I'd respect you so much it'll be so much fun to play with you but you know what I've built here in Dallas and uh, they everybody's been super loyal to me and uh, and I, I think he expected that answer. I think in a way he, he respected me for that. Uh, and in a way, I think he wanted me to, to, to stay loyal and stay here in one team. And um, Did, you, did it, was, it make you consider it at all? Because of No, not yeah. really, not really. I yeah. mean, you know, I always said the only reason for me to ever leave Dallas was if I wouldn't have won the championship and I, would, I needed to chase it at the end. But at that point, when he recruited me, we had already won it here. And, you know, I knew I was going to finish my career here in Dallas, and uh, so, but it was still good to hear from him. Sometimes it's, you know, it's good to feel wanted. Thanks for listening to my interview with Dirk Nowitzki. To watch highlights from his foundation's star-studded tennis tournament, including my chats with Ben Stiller, Steve Nash, and others, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And as always, before you go, please leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>